Chances are, if you're on the market for a new property or are trying to sell, you might have noticed how bonkers the Australian property market is right now. Queues of 30 people at open inspections isn't unheard of in metropolitan areas, and prices are skyrocketing due to demand. It's an unexpected outcome. The start of the COVID pandemic saw predictions that house prices would fall by 10 to 20%. One year on and the Australian house prices are now surging at their fastest rate since 2003. After all the talk of crashing house prices a year ago, it's enough to give would-be buyers whiplash. I'm Kat Clay, the Head of Digital Communications, and here to tackle the very real issue of housing affordability is Brendan Coates, Household Finances Program Director. Welcome, Brendan. Hi, Kat. So now this is a bit of a personally relevant one because we're both trying to upgrade our places right now. How's the search going? Well, this is the second home we're looking at trying to buy, upgrading from the the small one we're in now. And every time we seem to be on the market for for a house, uh, house prices are booming. So maybe I'm not the best person to talk to when it comes to trying to find a house. Yes, and I'm in the same boat as well. House prices are booming and, you know, I've seen those queues at the door at inspections on the weekend and it's it's a very strange situation to be in compared to when I was looking six years ago. I just want to start by jumping into the numbers. What has happened to housing since the start of COVID? So when COVID really hit Australia, um, or at least the realisation that COVID could hit Australia, which came in sort of early March of 2020, Uh, We saw house prices and rents fall uh, in large part because we, one, shut the borders. So you go from having, you know, net oversized migration to Australia of 250,000 people a year to basically zero. Uh, And that happened essentially overnight um, in March. At the same time, we've also had, you know, growing lots of concern about people losing their jobs. So when we did actually have those shutdowns in March and April, uh, there were obviously a lot of government supports put in place, but a lot of people were thrown out of work. So you know, a year ago, we didn't have 30 people queued up outside auction houses. Uh, we had, you know, hundreds of people queued up outside Centrelink. And you'd think in that kind of world, you'd expect house prices to fall. And in fact, that is in what did happen. So prices fell uh, by a couple of percentage points, three or four percentage points in some of our major cities like Melbourne and Sydney. They didn't really fall very much at all in, in other places like Perth, Adelaide and, and Brisbane. Um, and you saw rents falling as well. So there were lots of stories of of, of people basically in inner cities, getting very cheap rental accommodation. So rents have fallen by something like, you know, 10% in inner city Melbourne and in Sydney, uh, particularly for apartments, uh, whereas they've tended to rise a lot of these rents in regional areas because as people prompted by um, spatial distancing, having to work from home, realised that they could in fact live where they wanted to and still, in a lot of cases, keep doing their work, we saw a big shift in people moving to trying to move to regional areas uh, and rents in those regional areas have been very strong. So the rental market has been sort of twofold. So inner cities in the cities have really struggled. Rents have gone down, which is great for affordability if you're a younger person. Uh, Rents in regional areas have gone up and that's uh, made a lot of people in regional areas struggle if they happen to be renters. But then prices, rather than falling by that sort of 5, 10, in some cases 20% forecast that others have made, we've instead seen house prices rise. And in fact, in, in February, they rose at the fastest pace in Sydney that they've risen uh, since uh, 2003, so 20 years, almost 20 years ago. So all the forecasts these days are for house prices to rise by 5, 10, 15, 20% over the course of the next year or so. Um, and, you know, that's quite a shock from where we were a year ago where, you know, certainly as a prospective home buyer, I'm also be selling the house that we currently live in. 
we were worried about are we going to have enough money when we sell the place to then have the deposit for the next place. Instead, we're thinking we're going to have a great deposit, but just how big a mortgage are we going to be taking on for that next house? I'm in exactly the same situation. I would like to know, though, what has driven this recent boom? And is it that magic word, a bubble? I think bubble makes for great podcasts, but I don't think it makes for a great explanation about what's going on, uh, which is, you know, there's a few candid explanations, but they all are really about the fundamentals. Uh, So first of all, you know, we're doing a lot better in COVID than we thought we would be a year ago. And that's the same in New Zealand where house prices have been rising really strongly. In fact, prices are you know, I think in Auckland up 20% in the last year, so much faster than in Sydney, Melbourne or the other major cities. Um, so we've done we've done better than we thought and that's obviously had an effect that people are much more optimistic. Consumer confidence is a lot stronger than we thought it would be because, you know, for a lot of Australia, uh, COVID hasn't been that big a thing apart from being not being able to, to, to go overseas. Uh, being here in Melbourne, it's obviously was a big thing through the winter. But, you know, we're coming out the other side as well, and I think we're starting to experience what quite a lot of the country was experiencing even from, say, mid-year last year onwards. Um, There's been, secondly, a huge amount of government support um, just in terms of incomes. So JobKeeper, JobSeeker, uh, these big payments uh, mean that we've thrown more money into the economy uh, than, you know, the amount of wages that people lost because of spatial distancing or they'd lost their jobs and had to stay at home. So incomes have risen. Consumption has fallen because in a lot of cases, people couldn't go out and do the things otherwise could have done. So savings have gone up a lot. So the household savings rate really exploded. So something like 20% of income was saved in, I think, the the June or September quarter last year. Uh, and so people have got bigger deposits. And then on top of that, we've had government incentives in terms of these um, souped up first home buyers grants, stamp duty concessions, uh, particularly at the state level. And that means that you know people have got more money to play with. And all those things are definitely factors, but I think you can't go past interest rates. So interest rates have fallen from, you know, the interest rate that people, that standard people were borrowing at a couple of years ago or at the start of last year was maybe 3.5%, 3.5% to 4%. Now those interest rates are down to 25 to 3%. You can get a mortgage rate, particularly for a fixed rate mortgage of less than 2% today. Um, and when those, those interest rates fall, um, the cost of borrowing is less. You can borrow a lot more. So you know, if you have interest rates that much lower, then you are talking about an increase in people's purchasing power of 20 to 30% uh, in that borrowing capacity. So that's borne out by some research by the Reserve Bank that said, uh, look, if interest rates fall and those interest rates um, falls are seen as being temporary, then uh, then you would see house prices rise by about 10%. If those interest rate falls are seen as being permanent, and remember here the Reserve Bank is signaling they're not going to raise rates until 2024, they don't think, um, then those interest rates cuts that we've seen would result in a 30% increase in house prices. Now, the reality is probably somewhere in between because the factors that have driven interest rates lower in Australia and around the world are likely to persist. You know, we're talking ageing populations, uh, wealth inequality, the rise of the high-saving Chinese economy. These factors mean that there's more demand, there's more supply of savings. And at the same time, as we've shifted towards services economy, uh, towards digital uh, they're less capital intensive, so there's been less need for investment. Those two things mean the interest rates at the equilibrium fall, and we've seen that in the fact that rates have trended down, not just in Australia but around the world over the last decade. So, you know, it's a reasonable expectation I think that people have that rates will be lower now over the course of the next 10 years than what they thought they would have been a year and a half ago. Therefore, they're borrowing more, and you can see that in the house prices. So it's not a bubble. No, I don't really think it is. I think what tends to happen is if we see this this underlying shift to 
expectations of high prices, you may now see people jump on board, particularly investors who are essentially speculating on uh, trying to make a quick buck out of rising house prices. You know, if we weren't about to buy a house, I'd think about going and buying a house in regional Australia for, for three or four years and just see if like, we can capture 20% on the upside. Um, and I think a lot of people who own homes already, where that equity in that home has gone up, they will be able to do that. And so if we see a lot of that happening, then I don't think you'd call it necessarily a bubble, but there'd certainly be a lot of exuberance on top of those fundamentals. And that would drive prices higher still. And that's the sort of thing that I think will worry financial regulators down the track. So going back to these price rises, I mean, isn't this a good thing for homeowners that prices are going up? Do we need to fix this? Well, you know, it's an interesting, it depends on your perspective, right? So you and I are homeowners, um, like the 70% of Australian households that own their own home. And to a large degree, you know, why would why would you worry that you've got rising house values? As, as John Howard said, no one used to stop him in the street to complain about house prices going up. Now, there is obviously a flip side to that, which is that it's harder for younger people to buy a house. Um, now, interest rates, to the extent that they're driving um, lower borrowing costs, means that some people you know, be, will be able to afford a bigger house than they could have previously. Um, but for a lot of people, particularly low-income earners without access to the bank of mum and dad, it makes that initial hurdle into the market much harder because you know the, the, the years of saving you have to do to save that deposit Say, you know, in Grattan's work, we, we assume 20% of your income is saved, um, that you're aiming to do that over the course of, um, they try to save a 20% deposit. You know, for the average house and the average income, it used to be six years, now it's more like 10. Um, so without the bank of mum and dad, it's hard to get in. Now, obviously, rents are falling. So if you want to keep renting, then renting is cheaper now than it has been over the last few years, uh, particularly if you want to rent in inner city Melbourne or Sydney, and you're happy to live in an apartment. So we should point out that's good news. If you are a younger person who is, you know, thinking about using, looking to buy a house and you're just wanting cheap rental costs, um, then that's great. You get cheaper rent. So rental stress will probably fall, basically because most people have managed to keep their jobs. Where people haven't kept their jobs, but they've got JobKeeper, they've had a higher income over this period. And so for the majority of people, they will probably face less rental stress now than they did a year ago. For those that lose their jobs... And, and is struggling on job seeker, which is now going to go back to its old rate, then life will be harder. But on the whole, rental affordability has improved. The other big question here, though, is if you've got falling home ownership amongst younger, poorer households, which is what we've already seen, then you're likely to see home ownership fall further. Now, it's a good question. Should we care? Like, is home ownership a policy objective for government? I tend to think that in a lot of societies, it's not. You know, if you go to Germany, you go to all the European countries, rates of home ownership are really low. Uh, they mainly live in res in rental stock that's owned by you know either government or big institutional investors, um, big housing trusts. Um, the trouble is in Australia we've set up our entire so many aspects of our society around the assumption of home ownership. So you know if you're on your own home um, and you, that's excluded when you go to retire and get the age pension. So you know two people same assets. One person gets the gets the pension because all of their assets are tied up in housing. The other person doesn't own their own home, they basically get no pension at all. And so we are going to have to face this reckoning, I think, where if home ownership keeps falling, then we're going to have to reassess whether we want to remain a home ownership society and what it would cost and take for us to do so. Um, the other big challenge here is if you have, you know, rising asset values, which is what we're seeing at the moment, you probably are increasing wealth inequality because you're creating a growing divide between the housing haves and the have-nots. Most homes that Australians live in are owned by Australians. We're really redistributing wealth uh, towards older Australians, wealthier Australians that own 
homes that they live in and invest in properties. So it's really a redistribution rather than any the, the societies are whole being worse off and there are consequences to growing wealth inequality in Australia. So humor me here, Brendan. If interest rates are the main culprit, why don't we just raise them? Yeah, it's an interesting question, you know, and I think this is there's a section of the um, of economic commentators, particularly on Twitter, that do raise this question from time to time when I when we're discussing it. I think we've basically ran this experiment pre-COVID, and we know that it doesn't bear repeating. So, you know, in, we've had some pretty poor macroeconomic outcomes pre-COVID. You know, inflation's been below its target for seven years. You know, average workers' wages have only grown after inflation by 0.3% a year, which is pretty slow, you know, compared to Australia's history. And a big reason for that is, you know, from 2016 onwards, the Reserve Bank has been um, one had had this particular focus on financial stability added to its to its mandate. So it's worried about setting interest rates to have full employment, to have inflation within its target band of two to three percent. And also to manage financial stability. And I think it's reasonable to conclude uh, that they've left rates higher than they probably could have, certainly in a time when they could have raised rates through 2016 onwards, uh, basically because they were worried about financial stability. That means more people are unemployed. Uh, wages growth is lower because if we're not near full employment, then you know wages will grow more slowly. And certainly our work that we'll publish in the coming months is, tends to be suggesting that wages, slow wages growth, about half of it is because of a poor macroeconomic macroeconomic outcomes. You know, if you we did this before COVID, these kind of leaning against the wind policy. So you basically reduce you raise rates above where you want them to be in order to prevent the risk of sort of future financial bubbles forming. The Reserve Bank's own research says that the cost of that in terms of the extra unemployment is somewhere between three and eight times higher than the benefits. You know, because if you do have a financial crisis and there's a big spike in unemployment, that's obviously bad. It seems to be on reasonable assumptions. Uh, that cost is definitely not worth doing. So the worst thing we could do right now is try to raise rates because unemployment's at 5.8%. The Reserve Bank thinks unemployment might ne- need to get to 4% before you start seeing wages rise. The difference between 5.8% and 4% is 500,000 Australians in work. And that's a big cost in order to try to make sure that house prices don't rise too quickly. So what would make a difference here? So in the short term, we need to distinguish between in the very short term over the course of, say, a year or so or a couple of years and in the long term. So in the short term, you know, house prices are really determined by the supply of housing is kind of fixed. You know, we only add 2% or 1.5% to the stock of housing every year. So if you're, if you're doing things to sort of boost supply, which we think are really important, they're not going to make a big difference in the short one. So in the short one, you're really talking about house prices being determined by expectations about what's going to happen to future house prices, you know, so people think house prices are going to go up, they'll go up, uh, which in turn are largely reflected in interest rates and access to credit. So because housing is both something that we live in, but also an asset we own. So the, the price you have to pay to borrow the money to buy the house that you then live in um, is really important. It has a huge impact on demand in the short term. Previously, the the APRA, the banking regulator, has has curbed mortgage credit. So they've curbed the amount that people can borrow because they've been worried about financial stability concerns. And this is what we think the Reserve Bank probably should have done before COVID rather than leaning against the wind. Those kind of controls can be very effective. So you can cap the growth in lending to property investors or for interest-only loans or where the borrower is trying to borrow five or six times their annual income. And in fact, there was a serviceability buffer that used to be in place. So it used to say that if you want to borrow, you're going to be assessed by their bank, assuming the interest rate on the loan is going to be 7%. And 
and it's kind of there to safeguard against the prospect rates rise and then you end up in trouble down the track. Now, we know that those policies are really effective at reducing prices because when we took them off in 2019, particularly the serviceability buffer, literally the weekend after the banks introduced that or removed the old serviceability buffer, and we've seen this in the data, house prices took off and they kept going up off up all the way until COVID. The thing is, though, that the that APRA isn't doing this to reduce house prices. They're only doing it because they're worried about financial stability. And even in tre- in the um, Senate estimates today, uh, well, this week, um, we've basically seen uh, the Treasury say they're not that worried about housing because the kind of people who are bar- who are pushing up prices at the moment, it's not investors. It's you and I, Kat. We're looking for a bigger house. We both want a- an office that we can both um, we can each um, have and. You know, my partner spent most of the last year working there. We've decided maybe we need a larger space. So it's been pretty small. Um, and so we're looking for more housing. Uh, so it's own occupiers that have really driven this. And so that, that's why APRA is unlikely to intervene in the very short term. But the moment they see investors, lots of high leverage loans, they will step in. And that's if you're trying to forecast house prices in the short term, basically you're trying to forecast what APRA is going to do with macroprudential rules. Because if they don't do anything, I think those forecasts for 15% house price growth are probably pretty spot on. Um, now, there is a debate here about should you use these tools just to explicitly reduce house prices rather than just to manage financial stability risks? The Reserve Bank of New Zealand has actually sort of gone, had to go down this path. They've been instructed by the government to do so. So the New South New Zealand government recently requested that the Reserve Bank there, which has con- control of both interest rates, monetary policy, and these financial um, regulatory tools that basically said that you need to consider house price sustainability when we look at these things. What's interesting is it's not an easy thing to do because what level of house prices are you aiming at? What's sustainable? Like that, These are difficult questions. It's going to be interesting to see how they do that, but I think it's something that's going to, it's going to come up more and more in policy discussions over the course of the next couple of years. Just to interrupt you there, um, I'm curious whether New Zealand have seen any kind of rise in unemployment there as a result of these changes. Well, what's interesting is they're not using interest rates to try to do this. So they are not repeating the mistake that the, the Reserve Bank made pre-COVID They are because they're responsible for these macroprudential tools as well, these restrictions on credit uh, on lending. They're, used, they're thinking about how they use those restrictions on lending, that financial stability policy, to implement this. So it's not leaning against the wind, so they're not making that mistake. The government raised that and the Reserve Bank pushed back very strongly uh, late last year. So instead, we're looking very much at financial stability, these kind of regulatory tools, which the the Reserve Bank there controls, whereas it's the banking regulator in Australia that does it. But they're grappling with how they're going to do this. And I don't think they really know exactly how they're going to do this, but that's certainly New Zealand has often been a, a seedbed for innovation on monetary policy. They've often done things like inflation targeting, for example, they did before any other country or more or less any other country. And, you know, this is, they're leading, they're at the head of the curve here. And it'll be interesting to see whether other countries follow this um, approach, particularly it's a Labor government there, uh, as to whether other countries look at doing similar things. I want to ask you too, um, just tapping into, you know, the changes and things that need to happen to control housing affordability and things like that in the long term. Like, are there any things that you're looking to forward in the future after we kind of get out this period, potentially post-2024 and beyond, that you can kind of enlighten us with? So, look, in the long term, it is really largely about supply. So in the 1950s, we had you know, really strong income growth post-war. Uh, we had increased access to credit and house prices didn't move, really. Instead, what we got is a boom in house building. And it's because at the time, it wasn't very difficult 
you know, in small cities, were relatively small for their time, Melbourne and Sydney, to expand out and build more housing and still be accessible to the city. Um, now, that's all changed. We're now in a world where planning rules are quite restrictive on what people can build. Now, obviously, those planning rules exist for a reason. They're making sure that you don't build a toxic waste dump next to a school. You know, that's what they're really about. Um, but it does have the effect of if you give your neighbour a say about what can be built next door and they don't like that five-storey apartment building that's going to get built and they petition for it not to happen, then the people who miss out are the people who would have otherwise lived in that building that don't actually have a democratic right to vote uh, if they don't live in the area already with local councils. So the big thing is really trying to fix the planning system. Now, that allow means allowing more development into inner and middle ring suburbs of our cities, allowing more apartments in and around the city CBD. And we think that would make a big difference to house, house price affordability and rental affordability in the long term. But it's a slow burn. You know, you add 2% of the housing stock this year, 2% next year. Each year, you're only adding a bit. If you fix the planning system, you're only adding a bit more. But over 10, 20 years, you know, as we've seen in other countries like Japan, where house prices really haven't moved, um, that you would see greater affordability. But that's a difficult thing to do. On the demand side, things we could probably do earlier is certainly trying to fix some of the tax concessions, negative gearing, the capital gains tax discount, the fact that um, the home is included or excluded largely from the age pension assets test. These things all add to the demand for housing and skew investment decisions towards housing and away from other things. Now, if you fixed all of those, you might reduce house prices by 10%. So it would help. Uh, along with the supply side, we think that would make a big difference. The challenge here is none of these things are politically very easy. They essentially involve taking, someone has to lose. So either, you know, I have to watch as my neighbour puts up a five-storey apartment building or, uh, you know, someone else can't get tax concessions they're currently uh, eligible for for their investment property. Um, and therefore, they're not necessarily all that popular. And instead, what governments have done is they focus on policies that sound good and don't make much of a difference, like first-home buyers grants, stamp duty concessions that just add to the cost of housing or add to the price of housing. Um, and until that changes... It doesn't matter what you probably do on the credit side in terms of lending, you're probably not going to solve the problem in the long term unless you look at underlying demand and supply and the policies that drive those two things. Thank you so much, Brendan, for your insight on this. It's fascinating when you dig deep under the surface of what seems like a very everyday decision to make, which is to buy your first home or a new home. If you're looking at the moment, I hope this podcast has been helpful and given you some insight into the complex world of housing prices. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please continue the conversation with us on social media at Grattan Institute or on Twitter at Grattan Inst. And you can follow us on your favourite podcasting app or platform to keep up to date with our latest work. As always, please take care and thanks so much for listening.